So it is my privilege to bring the word to you again this morning. Um, we're going to continue this series today, and then on January the 12th, I'm going to I'm going to focus on the last of the points in this uh, sermon series, and it's a prelude to our mission emphasis month, which we will have guest speakers for four weeks, focusing on our mission um, as a church. Uh, next week. We have a, uh, a visiting uh, preacher, the founder of uh, East Cobb Presbyterian Church, the pastor who came and started this church, Randy Pope, uh, will be ministering to us as he has recently retired and is now available. We, we thought it would be good to snag him and have him come and minister the word. So that'll be next week, and then we'll continue our series uh, going on from there. The series is entitled Whiter Than Snow. Uh, It's an emphasis on the purifying grace of God through Jesus Christ, specifically, as Isaiah says, come to me and and, and I will make you whiter than snow, though your sins be as scarlet, Isaiah 118, they shall be whiter than snow. Um, God is addressing a rebellious people, a people who have wandered from him, and he tells them that he he can do something for them. In the previous verse, he says, uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. James takes that text and uses it in his uh, letter. Um, But but the idea there is do your own cleansing, uh, and because that's not going to work, I'm going to cleanse you. Um, Because your cleansing is not sufficient, here's what I will do for you through my servant, uh, the Messiah that that he promises throughout the text. Christ came, as Titus says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And we rejoice, and we should rejoice as the people of God that we have been purified by grace, that uh, we are now in the light and able to walk in the light of God because of the grace of Christ. The challenge for us is that, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, we typically, and, and this is before we come to Christ and after, we create boundaries of purity whether it's purity based on our traditions or on our view of ourselves, we create a boundary and we exclude people from that. We other them. You know how they are. You know how they look at them and and we focus on the differences between us and create a purity culture. This is exacerbated in the church. The church can quickly become a purity culture because of the grace that we've received and our commitment to the holiness of God. Um, we can erect barriers that actually keep us from the mission of Christ. And uh, certainly the evangelical church has been guilty of that. Um, I grew up in a tradition that actually celebrated that. Uh, I was a separatist by conviction. We were the church militant, and uh, we are are still a, a, a militant church in that we march towards the uh, end of the world with the kingdom of God, but we were separatists and proud to be so. And so this, the books that I've read and the things that, uh, that I've, I've considered have been a great uh, source of encouragement and, and challenge to me. But the question for us is how do we move out of this purity culture? How do we become a people that embrace sinners in the same way that we've been embraced by God? And this is how Paul ends Romans 15, I think it's in verse 7, he says, welcome one another in the same way Christ has welcomed you. 
How do we enter into that kind of a culture? Last week we considered, first you have to build an identity based on grace. You have to think of yourselves in terms of recipients of grace, that everything you are, everything that you have, everything that's unique to you, the abilities that you have in whatever area, the, the traditions that you've created as a family that you celebrated and, and used all those traditions this holiday season, um, all these things are a result of the grace and the goodness of God. And it's from that position of humility, which is what grace does, is it humbles us. It's from that position that we're able to start to love others and not criticize and not compete and not do what Paul talked about in Galatians, right? If you bite and devour one another, be careful lest you be consumed by one another. So a a humble person, and grace leads us to humility, is a person who can genuinely start to love others. But there's more. Because there has to be sacrifice. There has to be the self-donation or the donation of self. So Jesus' mission of embrace requires the sacrifice of self. And this one, folks, I tell you, it, it just goes directly against everything that is Americana. American individualism is the religion of our day. And the narcissism that comes out of that individualism and the relativism that comes out of that is stark and is destroying our country. Jesus' mission of embrace requires the sacrifice of self. So let me go through these. Build an identity of grace. Learn to sacrifice self. First of all, and I, I think um, a number of, of sources would, would, uh, would lead us to this thought is that we widen our hearts. And by that, I mean making room for others within yourself. Making room for other people within who you are, within your time, within your, your, uh, your scheduling, within the boundaries that you've created, even the boundaries of your of your yard, right? Making room for people in your life and in your, uh, your sense of identity. Consider some scriptures, or cons- I guess I have the quotes first. This is from uh, Beck, Richard Beck, in his book, Unclean. He says, the feeling of rightness trumps our sober reflection and moral discernment. When this happens, we drift towards positions that psychologically resonate with us that feel intuitively right. He's highlighting the problem of how we close ourselves off, how we start to close ourselves off. Um, It was really funny when my wife and I started dating. This little catchphrase kept coming up in my vocabulary, and she called me on it early on in our marriage. I I would say often, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. I'd be talking about something, that's just wrong. And she said, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of things that are just wrong. And it, it was one of those moments of clarity where I, it was, a, it was kind of a dagger, not her, but I mean the Holy Spirit used it to kind of stick me and say, Tim, if everyone's wrong but you, what does that mean? Um, but we, we tend to close ourselves off because 
we're not thinking about, there's not sober reflection about what's right or wrong. There's, there's a feeling of rightness. We all have this. You have this in your own life. There's a feeling of rightness. There's a feeling of rightness when you're standing in the Walmart line and you're watching the people around you. There's a feeling of, I'm right, you're wrong. There's a feeling of criticism. Look, I wouldn't do it that way. Why won't they take care of their kids? Why don't why they discipline their kids? There's a feeling of rightness in these moments that doesn't build bridges. It creates boundaries. It creates walls. And so what we do is we begin to rank people on the continuum of sinner and saint. And if you do this, you're in this trap. You're in this psychologically resonating feelings of right and wrong. So disgust, Wolf says, erects boundaries. Love is the thing that dismantles them. So this is Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians is defending himself. The Corinthian church, he's written them some pretty harsh letters. He's directed them to do some discipline that they've been neglecting. And they've started, the, the people in the church, the leadership doesn't like Paul, and so they've started a narrative against Paul. And so Paul is writing them to defend himself and to say, hey, whoa, 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 that narrative is not right. And you're starting to close yourself off, especially from me. So this is what he says. It's in that context. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. What's Paul communicating? I don't don't have boundaries. I haven't excluded you because of your failures, which 1 Corinthians is all about their failures as the people of God. And Paul says, I haven't closed you off. I haven't closed my heart to you. I haven't shut you out. I haven't written you off. I've opened my heart to you. My heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, Widen your hearts also. Make room in your hearts for us. What's Paul appealing to? He's appealing to this this narrative and the feeling of disgust and barriers that have been put up that are trying to exclude Paul. And Paul's crying out and saying, whoa, stop the presses. Open your hearts to us. Now I think it's instructive that, number one, he assumes we have this ability to open our hearts to tear down the barriers and the boundaries that we've created. I think that's important because it gives me hope that grace can actually help me love what I consider unlovely, love what I would declare unclean, and minister in in the spirit of humility. But it also, I think, is instructive in that it shows us our tendencies. It shows us how we tend to respond to people we don't like, or to the narrative about a person that we've created in our lives. This is very much what Jesus says in Matthew 22. This is the great commandment. To love your neighbor as yourself means to make room for your neighbor within you. To tear down those boundaries and those barriers that we've created, those those separatist points, those separating points, and to let people into our lives that that don't fit us or that have offended us. And if it's been someone who's hurt you, you might do so cautiously, 
but there's a, a desire to move toward and to build bridges instead of boundaries. So I think one of the first things we do in sacrifice is we, 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 we tear down our barriers and we try and widen our hearts, open ourselves up to others. I think the second thing we have to sacrifice of self is we have to live within community. We can't be these individuals. We can't define ourselves individualistically. And we, we did better at this earlier in American history when we lived in communities, when we didn't live in suburbia, when we lived in smaller towns, in agricultural communities, there was a sense of, you know, you gather on Friday nights for the big hoedown in the middle of the square of, of the town, and you spend time together, and you, 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 know, you drink ale together, and you, you celebrate the harvest together. There was community. Everyone knew everybody. Um, there was a, probably a lot of gossip going on, but there was still community uh, within our, our sense of uh, existence, that has fundamentally changed since the industrial age. And so now we, we live in, and we, and we are promoting individualism. Our homes promote it. Uh, I showed my wife the Avalon community up in Alpharetta. What a, what a restructuring of American life the Avalon community is. If you don't know what it is, it's, it's hundreds of residentials, built around a city square, built around restaurants and shops, and you can, you can go up to your villa and then come down, just like a city, but in a smaller community. As Christians, we should be committed more than any to live in community. Paul says this, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Fundamental to what it means to be a Christian is to live in community. To, to make a sacrifice and say, I, I would love to be independent. I would love to be an introvert and just, just stay in my little life and do my little thing and work from home and stay at home and order pizza at home and, and get, ta- you know, get delivery and just stay there. But as a Christian, I, I'm determined, I'm committed to live in a bigger picture, to live in a bigger story than mine. This is Paul's argument in in Ephesians 4, where he says that pastors are here to equip the saints so that the saints or the church can do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And he says this, when each part is working properly, that's what makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And see, this is is church. Uh, This is sometimes where the church fails. You hire a pastor and you think the pastor is supposed to grow the church. No. The pastor equips the body, the body builds the church. That, that, that needs to be a clarified thing because so many churches around here, and by the way, I think we do a great job at that, a, a better job than most here at East Cobb, but so many churches in evangelicalism hire the professionals to go do the work. And then the people show up to consume. That is fundamentally not who we are. That's not the body of Christ. But it requires that you die to self, that you sacrifice self to be a part of community. This is why our fundamental purpose as a church, we believe that we exist to glorify God, but we believe that God put us in family, in community, in church. And so our fundamental purpose as a church family is to glorify God through gospel-centered community. We create and maintain gospel-centered community because that's, that's who we are and that's, that's God's calling on us. We don't grow in grace apart from community. 
Wolf argues for what he calls double vision. Now, this is in the context of his, of his discussion on justice. But it's seeing the world from my perspective and the perspective of others. How do we start to step out? First, we, we work to step outside of ourselves. To get, we, we have to push through that barrier of, of indi- individualism, which is challenging. Okay? I went to a Christmas event actually on Christmas night. And I walked in, it was a Jesus birthday party. And I walk in and there's people and I'm doing the Pastor Tim thing. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Merry Christmas, you know. And I'm not really schmoozing that bad. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking to people and I'm shaking their hands and I'm asking them how their Christmas was and, and listening to their stories. And, and then I grabbed my soup and I went and sat down at a table with, where there were three other guys. None of them were talking. And I sat down and one of them looked at me and said, this is the table for people who are done talking. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, then why are you talking? <laughs> and I went back to my soup and giggled a little bit, you know. And then we had a great conversation. Uh, we all have these, this, I'm done, I want to be alone, I want to, and, and I understand we need time to regroup and time to get our energy back, especially those of us who are not full-bore extroverts, Okay which I am not. Um, I'm more of a professional extrovert. Okay, I do it because it's my job. But if if you were to ask me, Tim, would you rather be alone in your office studying or reading or writing or whatever, or would you rather be in a a group of people? I'd say, office. It's safer there. (laughs) I'm not going to put my foot in my mouth there. Okay. Um, So there's there's an effort to step outside of ourselves. Now, you might, not, you, you might be an extrovert, and stepping outside yourself is no big deal. That's not, we're not just talking about communication. We're not just talking about talking to people. We're talking about getting involved in their lives. And that takes sacrifice to make yourself, to make others a part of your life, to get outside of the closed doors of your home and outside the boundaries of your yard. Um, we cross the boundaries of self and move into the world of another. And that's why this is not just, let's go talk to people. You're moving into their world. And I'm going to explain a great way to do that, and I think a fundamental way that the church in our culture struggles with. But crossing that boundary, moving into the world of another. This is why I think mission trips are so good for our teenagers, is because you can say, let's go down and let's... let's help with the dream center but you're not really moving into their world mission trips forces our teens to move into the world of another let me ask you when was the last time you moved into someone else's world when was the last time you moved into someone else's world and you just experienced that world i I think that's i think probably most of us would have to say i haven't done that in a long time if ever because we're so individualistic, our world is one story. It's mine. Um, and then take the other person into your world, adjusting who you are. Right? You're part of my life now. You're now part of my life. I'm not going to go on without you in my world and me in yours. And then Wolf says, repeat that process. Just keep repeating it. And this is where the church, and, and it's, it's not that we've, we've been willfully rebellious with the mission of God. We've just adopted the individualism of our culture. We've just adopted the individualism of our culture, and before you know it, we're closed off. 
Living in community draws us out of our story of one. That word story of one is something I got from Paul Tripp. It calls us out, it draws us out of our story of one, the story of me, and it opens us to something bigger than ourselves, a broader story of God's grace and mercy for the world. But if you're, if you're living individualistically, you can't do that. And so you have to push through those boundaries and determine to live in community. The third thing is to learn to practice hospitality. Now, you might be surprised, but hospitality is a key trait of the church. Okay? Uh, let me defend that statement. Acts 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. You see that? The fellowship, the breaking of bread into prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Hospitality. Opening our homes sharing our food, sharing our lives with others. Paul says it directly, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The problem is when purity, when the will to purity trumps the will to embrace, when sacrifice precedes mercy, which is what Jesus says in Matthew 9, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When sacrifice precedes mercy, I'm going to these are, the, these are the things I'm going to do to keep myself pure. The gears of social moral disgust begin to turn, poisoning the well of hospitality by acting, activating the emotions of otherness. Purity is often based not on Scripture, but on my own traditions, on how I do it, and the boundaries of who I think I am, the boundaries of self. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. All right, so this is a book I would recommend. It's by Rosaria Butterfield. I'm not going to go into her whole history, a former LGBTQ uh, professor, um, and she came to Christ through the hospitality of a PCA minister and later in life married a single PCA minister and has adopted several children. Great books. I would highly recommend them. Um, her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in a Postmodern World. That's the full title. It's a big one. She tells the story of a man named Hank. Now, Rosaria has the practice of walking her dogs and of being in her neighborhood, in her cul-de-sac. They have a neighborhood Bible study, a neighborhood worship service kind of thing every Sunday night. Um, they, they, they make soup. Anyone in the neighborhood who wants to come can come. Anyone from the church can come. It's kind of an open-door policy. And she has regular ministry with her neighbors. Now, i got to tell you, I listened to this book on Audible while I was working outside the house this summer on my time off. And I listened to the book and said, wow, I'm so far down the line on the spectrum of hospitality. I mean, I consider myself a pretty hospi hospitable person, and our home is pretty open. But wow, okay? So... If you read the book or listen to the book, don't think you have to be Rosaria. Okay? Tremendous example, but don't think you have to be her. Well, a man named Hank 
moved into their neighborhood. In fact, just a house or two down from her. And Hank was reclusive. There were other people. Another woman was living at the home, but they never met her. They didn't really know who she was. And Hank, every once in a while, once a day, I guess, would come out and walk his dogs. And so Rosaria and the family started to invite Hank and whoever else was living there to their Bible study and their, their dinner. Never came. Would not acknowledge her. Just, you know, one of those people, if you've lived up north and you don't wave at people in your neighborhood, just so you know, if you ever move up north, don't wave to the people in your neighborhood. They're going to think you're up to something. Okay? When you move back down in the south, first time I drove in my neighborhood, everyone waved at me. And I was actually put off by it. I had been up north for seven years, and it's like, I got to wave at everybody? Good grief. That wasn't part of the contract, you know? Um, so she's waving, and he's not waving back. Does not acknowledge And so one day, and they were praying, the family was praying for Hank, didn't know much about him, praying for an opportunity, and uh, one of his dogs got out. And so the family spread out throughout the neighborhood and started looking for the dogs. And God used that as an opportunity to connect the Butterfields with Hank. And so a relationship started. It was very tenuous, it was very simple, but they would start to walk their dogs together. And before you know it, after some time and some trust, he actually came to one of their meals. And I think it was the next day, they woke up at four in the morning to a police raid on Hank's home. Hank was cooking meth, methamphetamine, illegal drugs, okay? Breaking bad, there you go. Now you're all up to speed. Hank was was cooking meth in his basement exposing her children to all the toxins that were coming out of that basement, exposing the neighborhood to crime, theft, all kinds of illegality. The police found the cook lab, arrested Hank, arrested his girlfriend. Hank's in jail, probably still today. They didn't give up on Hank, and they didn't didn't say, well, Hank got what he wanted. That's enough. No. They had stepped out. They had brought Hank into their world. They weren't willing to go on without Hank in their world. They were committed to Hank. And so they started to visit Hank in jail. They started to visit Hank in prison. Hank has since come to Christ. Hank has since become a follower of Jesus. He might live the rest of his days in prison, but he's free today. And all because of an open home, an open heart. People who are welcoming their neighbors. Opening your home challenges your raw individualism and joins you to others. We need to be looking out for the Hanks, not the meth cookers. That's not what I mean. The people that we can minister to and develop relationships with in our neighborhoods. Fourthly, pursue the welfare of others. I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to have to hurry. Paul says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. This is Jeremiah's statement. When God's people go into exile, they're being lied to by the false prophets, told, go back home, don't stay here, rebel. 
And uh, this is the message to them from God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all his exiles, uh, or he exiled whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Is that them or him? Him. Live in him. Uh, yeah. Don't know how that happened. Not as good a typist as I want to be. Uh, plant gardens and eat their produce. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Um, Wolf actually wrote a whole book on this, on this verse. I would highly encourage you to read it. It's called For the Sake of the World. Okay, I'll say it again. For the Sake of the World. Um, great book that I read a while back. But um, seek the welfare of the city. We look, to, we, we look to the welfare of others. This is how Jesus defines his identity, isn't it? He defines himself by the welfare of others, not by his own welfare. Um, this is actually the book that got me started on this whole line of thinking. It was Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet. It's about the story of Jonah. Um, he criticizes Jonah for how he's handling the sailors in the ship before they throw him overboard and a big fish comes and eats him. Okay? And Keller says, our lot is joined to the community. Why don't we care? That's his, that's his big question. Why don't we care that our lot is joined to East Cobb, to Marietta? Jonah fled because he did not want to work for the common good, only his own interests and that of his people. Focusing on ways that others are different from me is to dehumanize them, to say, you know how they are. Jonah was completely absorbed by his own problems while the sailors were pursuing the common good, the good of their fellow man. And so Keller challenges us what it looks like to pursue the common good in our society, to pursue the common good in a place like East Cobb. These are some of the things that he, he proffers, and I've just listed them. Number one, a safe environment free from crime and health hazards. We can work towards that together. We should work towards economic prosperity and a human work, a humane, sorry, not human, humane workplaces. really didn't do a good job typing, did I? Eh, it's good for a laugh. Um, economic prosperity and humane workplaces. I think Chick-fil-A is a great example of a company that is pursuing the common good economically and as a business in our community. But there's, there's others. There's more than that. But they're a great one. Um, a state of peace rather than violence between individuals, races, groups, or nations. Just social order rather than corruption and a justice system weighted against the weak and the poor. I think some of our lawyers, even in here, are doing that. Um, publicly available resources, such as good education, medical services, parks, and recreation, things that bring the welfare of others. Social harmony and civility, where all people relate to one another with respect, um, becoming more and more difficult in our current political climate. A community committed to caring for the weak, immigrants, poor, elderly, chronically ill, single parents, etc., and a government that works for all citizens, not just the rich and the powerful. Um, pursuing the welfare of others, pursuing the welfare of our city, pursuing the welfare of, of our county, 
and of our state is how we, we step out of our boundaries and we sacrifice self because, right, who cares about them? I'm just concerned about me. Folks, that's the, the mantra of Jonah. That's the mantra of Peter in his moment when he's excluding Gentiles. And unfortunately, this has become American Christianity. And so to step out of that is, is uh, essential to who we are. The sacrifice of self is to pursue justice with grace. You know what? I think I'm actually going to stop here and cover these last two ones next week. Um, next week, we're going to look at, or in two weeks, we're going to look at pursuing justice with grace and then uh, the practicing forgiveness. At the end of the day, remember the main point is that we're not going to move out of our exclusion. We're not going to move out of our individualism if we don't build an identity based on the grace of God and if we don't start making sacrifices to our individualism, to ourself, that will transform the world. We do that in, in, in more ways, but these are the ones that we widen our hearts, we open ourselves up, we commit to living within community and to practicing hospitality with the people in our community and pursuing the welfare of the people in our community. And next, in two weeks, we'll look at pursuing justice with grace and practicing forgiveness. Let me pray for us.